The time's 9.59, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Natalie Springle, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will benefit, be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. This is Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, guest host for this program while Ron Beard is away. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. This morning, our topic is fisheries heritage and the role, fisher the role fisheries have played in our Down East Coastal communities for generations and up to the present. Yesterday, a new effort to celebrate our region's fisheries heritage was launched with a special ribbon cutting ceremony at the Copscook Bay State Park boat launch, which is an important access point for commercial fishermen and recreational boaters. This is one of 45 sites on the Down East Fisheries Trail, which highlights and celebrates the fisheries heritage of Washington and Hancock counties today and for generations. With the dramatic changes that have happened in our coastal communities over the decades, it would be easy to forget that diverse fisheries have long been central to our culture, economy, and way of life. Even today, it would be easy to miss the important role that fishing families play in our communities. In our studio today, we have some great folks who will help us keep that fisheries heritage alive. We're joined in the studio today by Dwayne Shaw of the Downey Salmon Federation, Kathy Billings of the Lobster Institute, and Dennis Damon, a former state senator who chaired the Marine Resource Committee for eight years and is now chairman of the board at Penobscot East Resource Center. Why don't we start with Dwayne? If you could tell us a little bit about what the Downey Salmon Federation does and um, who you are. Hi. Well, thank you for having us, uh, getting us together, Natalie. This is a great opportunity, I think, um, open up the discussion around our fisheries and where it's all going and where we've come from. And the Downey Salmon Federation is celebrating actually our 30th year this year, and it was organized by angling groups in the eastern Washington County and throughout Washington County. We, since that time, have done um, a lot directed toward um, restoring Atlantic salmon. Of course, now they're listed as an endangered species, and the work that we do, we, we approach our work from the community level, much like um, this radio does, and we involve the community in, in all aspects of fisheries restoration connected to freshwater um, and ocean-going species that come in and out of our rivers. We have two hatcheries, and we have uh, now five staff working in Washington County. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Dwayne. Um, Kathy, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the Lobster Institute? Yes, certainly, Natalie. Uh, I first want to say that the Lobster Institute is really pleased to be a part of the Downey Fishery Trails uh, 
effort. And uh, we are based at the University of Maine, and we focus on the lobster that is fished from Long Island Sound all the way up through Newfoundland, and it, that's the Homars americanus. And our, our core functions, as we like to call them, are conservation, outreach, research, and education. And it's all geared towards sustaining a healthy resource and also a vital fishery. And we really believe there uh, can be, should be, and, and is a balance between those two efforts. And we act as sort of the liaison between the industry and scientists, both at the University of Maine and all throughout the fishing region. Great. Thanks, Kathy. And um, Dennis, I know that you've been in the state Senate and you were chair of the Marine Resources Committee. And more recently, you're on the board of the Penobscot East Resource Center. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to? Sure, I'd be happy to. And uh, thank you again for um, involving us in the conversation. Um, I have been involved in fisheries uh, literally all my life. Um, came from a fishing family. Um, and did some fishing myself some time ago. Um, while I was involved in the legislature and chair of the Marine Resources uh, Committee, I also had the uh, pleasure and honor of being one of the commissioners from the state of Maine to the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Each state from Maine to Florida has uh, three commissioners um, that meet uh, four times a year to um, help regulate and manage the migratory fish stocks along the East Coast. So fisheries management as well as fisheries practice have been um, a part of my uh, part of my concern and my understanding and then now belonging to and being a member of the Penobscot East Resource Center in Stonington. Though it's about a third of the uh, uh, age of the Down East uh, Salmon Federation, uh, because we're celebrating our 10th year this year, um, the mission of the uh, Penobscot East Resource Center and uh, its, its understanding goes back long, long before that, when we had in Maine a, a diversified fishery. Uh, we have a, a fairly undiversified fishery now that's primarily dependent upon lobsters. and. And though it's a uh, good thing temporarily, I guess, for those who are partaking in that portion of the harvest, uh, in the long term, uh, it's not uh, a good thing. And maybe we can talk about some of that during the course of the show. Great. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah, we will talk about that. That sounds wonderful. Um, let's let's sort of get an understanding of what the Down East Fisheries Trail is first. Now, um, Penobscot East Resource Center and the Down East Salmon Federation are both sites on the Down East Fisheries Trail, and the Lobster Institute is um, part of the core planning group of the Down East Fisheries Trail. So, Kathy, can you tell us a little bit about what this trail is? Yes, certainly. Um, the trail was actually originally conceived back in, I think, the late 1990s uh, to highlight uh, fisheries past and present uh, in the Hancock, Washington County um, areas. And this was something that was started by the uh, Sunrise County Economic Development Group, among others. And it uh, really is revitalized now with the efforts of many people that have put time and effort into this. And it's just a way to not only bring people to the areas of uh, Hancock, Washington counties, 
but also to help educate the people who live in those areas about their heritage and culture as it relates to the fisheries. So it's a, a linkage of, uh, as was said, 45 different sites uh, that stretch from Penobscot Bay through Frenchman Bay all the way up to Cobbscook Bay and uh, all the different aspects of the fisheries that have taken place in those areas over the years. So it's a good way for people to come uh, follow the points on the Downey's Fishery Trails map uh, or through the, the website and hit all the highlights of, of the fishing heritage of that area of Maine. Great. Thank you. And I know that there was an event yesterday to launch the trail. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? I, you oh, certainly. It was oh, a wonderful event and the weather certainly cooperated. Uh, there <coughs> were at least 40 people who uh, joined with the planners of the fisheries trail up at the uh, boat landing at Cobbscook Bay State Park. And we unveiled at that point one of the four brand new signs that have been put in place that are interpretive signs that talk about the fishing in that particular region and, and the fish themselves that are, are caught. And this was a way to sort of kick off uh, what we hope to have several events throughout the summer at various sites along the trail. And this was the, the very first, and we were pleased that the folks from the um, state parks could be with us to really make that uh, a wonderful effort and get some good coverage so people can start learning about the trail. Great. Sounds like a good time. Um, Dwayne, I know that you guys have been involved since the original concept um, back 10 or, or so years ago. Um, tell us a little bit about why, um, why you've been involved, why you've been sort of committed to being involved in this project all these years and what your role is, what you see your role is today. Mm -hmm. Well, there's been, um, of course, there's a lot of questions about fisheries in general and, and where these fish come from, where they go, when they're, when they're harvested and and how that connects to local economy and and people visit the region and people that live here um, have differing um, levels of awareness around these things. So places like Bad Little Falls Park in Machias, well, this is a beautiful park there and a lot of people visit it and that was an opportunity to put up some signage that could interpret for people. Um, well, there are alewives moving through here. What are all these nets out here? These are elver nets and so on. And it's, um, I think, um, just important to get information out to people so wiser decisions are made about natural resource management as time goes on. In our case, we have um, a strong mission around education. We believe that education really is the core of, of how, we, how we need to proceed as we um, manage these species and manage our connection to them. So we have um, two sites on the trail ourselves. This is one in East Machias one in Columbia Falls, and we're involved with um, working on another one at the Cable Pool on the Narraguegas and Cherryfield right now. So the in interpretive signage, um, the wording around that, the images and so on need to be chosen and refined to send a um, clear message and, and to speak to a wide audience. Um, I can talk a little bit more about our particular sites. Um, we have a smokehouse we've just built, for instance, in East Machias. We have a what we call a heritage fisheries camp, which is a working waterfront feature in Columbia Falls connected to the smelt fishery. Um, and people can visit this, and this is bringing forward history from uh, really centuries coming forward, even early as the 1600s when the French were here. We've, we've, we've pulled that information together to right to current day where uh, students are, are funding their trip to Boston to see the Red Sox at the end of the school year by selling smoked alewives in East Machias. So it's, 
it really wow. carries it all through. That's neat. That's neat. Um, Dennis, do you want to tell us a little bit about, from the perspective of Penobscot East Resource Center, um, sort of your interest in helping um, either visitors or even folks who are here locally understand a little bit more about our fisheries and what role they play in our communities and a little bit about what you've seen in your time involved with these kinds of issues? Uh, sure, I'd love to talk about that. I, I first want to um, uh, emphasize again something that Duane just said, and that's education. Mm -hmm. uh, education for people who uh, perhaps don't know anything about the fisheries, its past or its present, or what we would hope for its future to be, and those who have been involved in it for um, for generations, literally. Education is still an important piece. Um, Duane was talking about the sites that the Down East Salmon Federation has, and they all seem to be on rivers. Now, isn't that strange when we're talking about our marine fisheries that we're talking about rivers? There is such an yeah. important link uh, between our marine Gulf of Maine fisheries and our rivers. Um, there are a type of fish, well, types of fish that, that spend part of their time in the ocean and the rest of their time um, in the freshwater environments, and maybe that's for reproduction. And likewise, there are types of fish that spend most of their time in the freshwater and then go to the saltwater. Um, collectively, they're known as diadromous species. Uh, and then individually, depending on where they spend most of their life, they're either anadromous, um, and that would be salmon and alewives and river herring and smelts and tomcod and sturgeon, spend most of their time in the ocean. But if they're going to have a complete uh, life cycle, uh, they must go into the fresh water. And they get to the fresh water through our various rivers and streams where they can lay their eggs, reproduce, and that um, cycle continues. It's important then that they have access to those areas where they bear their young. Um, and then there's a type of fish called catadromous, which spends most of its life in the freshwater and then goes to the saltwater to uh, uh, complete its life cycle. That's primarily the American eel. Both of those fish are, uh, both of those types of fish are endangered because either A, they can't get from the from the salt water to their freshwater environments because of dams or other impediments that we have put up to block their way, or if they have spent most of their time in the freshwater and need to go to the salt water, the Sagasso Sea, for instance, to, to have their young, um, they have to go through the turbines of the dams and oftentimes get chopped up. It's a very, very um, delicate uh, position that they have to accommodate, and it's one that we've put barriers to. So education mm -hmm. is a real, real key. From the perspective of um, Penobscot East uh, Resource Center in Stonington, isn't it interesting, as you've talked about the Down East Fisheries Trail, that you've talked about from, literally, you haven't used the word St. Croix, but it is uh, from the Penobscot River to the border of Canada. That's the area that we're focused on at Penobscot East. We're focused on what was fishing like in the past? What is it like now? How are we going to, if we need to restore it to its past diversity, which I believe we, we do, how are we going to do that? Um, one of the ways that we're going to have to do it is, is work with Downey Salmon Federation, Lobster Institute, and all the other organizations that will 
um, work to open up the rivers and the access. Ted Ames, one of our founders and currently a board member at Penobscot East, has done a very comprehensive study on ground fish uh, in the Gulf of Maine, and those are the fish that don't typically come up into the freshwater, the cod, haddock, pollock. Um, and he has uh, found historically their, um, their breeding areas, um, their spawning areas. I don't think we should call them breeding areas. They're spawning areas. And as he has, hist has gathered the historical data to see that these were where various populations of these ground fish were spawning and layered upon it the uh, migration patterns of the anadromous fish, alewives in particular, wow, all of a sudden it became apparent that these uh, populations of ground fish were, were, were right off the mouths of these various river systems. Why would they be doing that? Well, his conclusion is, and it's one with, I happen to agree, is that you have a tremendous amount of forage fish coming out of those rivers um, that these ground fish would eat as part of their uh, life cycle. And that's, we, when we interrupt one of those things, like the, the passage of the forage fish, the river herring, the alewives, et cetera, you drive those other fish, if there's nothing to eat, they don't stay there. And so we wonder why we're not having ground fish in Maine. That's not the final and single answer, but it's one of a very complex part of the, part of the puzzle that's one that we need to work on, and it's one that we've been exploring and working to educate people with at the Penobscot East Resource Center. Great. So <clears throat> we've heard mention of a, a number of different species already, um, cod, haddock, flounder, smelt, elvers, alewives, and mm -hmm. many more. And yet, um, I would venture to say that for a visitor to the coast of Maine, they might think that the only thing that's in our ocean is lobster. Um, so I think this is a question for all three of you. Um, w what's happened over the last number of decades that we don't have as diverse a commercial fishery? And um, what role does, does lobster play in that equation today? Um, I think it's for for all three of you. Do you does Kathy? Do you want to maybe start with that as sure, a person I'll, who spends all your waking hours working on lobster? <laughs> I'll give it a start. Um, as you said, lobster has sort of become the uh, the almost the only really sustainable commercial fishery right now for in the eyes of the lobstermen. The fish themselves, that's a whole other question. But uh, commercially, the lobster is king right now. And we've seen an amazing jump over the years. This is one of the uh, fascinating things about keeping statistics. If you look at the landing charts from 1950s up through 1990s, they were all, uh, you know, fairly steady. And uh, then from 90 to the present, we've seen an incredible jump, almost like a 70% jump in the catch. And we're now landing, um, this past year, we landed nearly 104 million pounds of lobster. And the value at the boat was $331 million for that mm. catch. So um, it also ranks third on the U.S. export list for value, dollar value of exports. So it's really a key economic force throughout the coast of Maine and down east in, in particular. And uh, as you've mentioned, why, why so much reliance on the lobster? Uh, th as I said, the catches are great. Uh, and for some reason, the um, amount of the um, ground fish has gone down. 
and there are a number of theories as to why that might be, um, and Dennis touched on, on some of them. Um, there's also the theory that because the ground fish levels are down, that the lobster population has increased because the lobster in its younger stages is certainly prey for a lot of those ground fish. And without that uh, predator being as prevalent, then the lobster stocks have gone up. Another theory is that we have so many people fishing for lobsters that are putting bait into the water that they're almost in essence farming them. They're providing them a free lunch, if you will. And there have been lots of videos that show a lobster can go in and out of a trap without too much trouble. So they can go in, they can dine on the herring or whatever bait is available and leave. So that's one other reason supposedly that the populations have gone up and it's one that makes a certain amount of sense. But I also want to mention probably what one of the most important reasons I see that the lobster population is doing so well is that the fishermen themselves have put conservation measures into place over an enormous length of time. Some of the first conservation measures were in place in uh, the 1870s and uh, they include such things as a minimum size that is allowable for a legal catch and a maximum size. So there's really a pretty small window of opportunity uh, for the fishermen to legally harvest a lobster. If you look at the shell of the lobster, the what we normally call the body part minus the tail, that's also known as the carapace, there's a measure for that that the fishermen must abide by. It has to be at least three and a quarter inches long before it's legal to catch. And if it's over five inches long, it's also not legal to catch. And those lobsters go right back into the water. And the whole theory behind those minimum and maximum sizes is to make um, an effort to have the most um, beneficial conditions for the lobster to reproduce. So for example, the, the minimum size is geared to have the lobster be able to at least go through one reproductive cycle. And then when you get to the larger size lobsters, they're exponentially more prolific breeders, if you will. So you'll, you're going to get uh, many more eggs and lobsters you know, repopulating. So those kinds of conservation measures, among many, many others, I think have uh, really gone into keeping the lobster stock very sustainable. Great. Thank you. Um, we'll hear from Duane in a section, uh, second. For those who are just tuning in, you're listening to um, WERU 89.9. And um, we're talking with Dwayne Shaw from the Downey Salmon Federation, um, Dennis Damon, who's on the board of Penobscot East Resource Center, and Kathy Billings from the Lobster Institute. Um, Dwayne, what have you seen over the years in terms of changes from some of the fisheries that you folks have been work on all the working on all these years? Well, I I do want to carry on the uh, with the uh, discussion around lobsters and Great. why why we have such a uh, uh, success story really with lobsters and that is that the fishermen have gotten involved with it. They've incorporated these measures on their own and and continue to negotiate with the agencies to put these into law and so on. So that's that's a real success in the in the sense that the the user of the resources has a say in how this is being done. I I know it's a struggle constantly, but the fact is that we need to use that same model with our other fisheries and, and realize that kind of a co-management approach is really the way forward for Maine in particular. We have um, clams. I was a shellfish biologist for over 10 years working out of Beals Island at the, re at the regional shellfish 
hatchery there and, and worked with communities on clam management. And clams um, and alewives have something in, in common, and, and that is that they can be managed at the town level. So the municipalities have a say in how that plays out. And again, um, the more um, forceful the communities are at, at making sure they continue to keep their seat at the table, I think the better off we all will be in the long run that the, you know, at the local level there's more and more buy-in and sophistication around um, what it takes to manage these, these creatures. Clams um, have a larval planktonic stage that you can't see without a microscope. It's really um, not the kind of thing that's um, considered in management until you have the information in hand, and that's only in sort of recent decades that we've had that. Um, I do want to say uh, uh, one thing about the connection between ground fish and lobster, and, and that is, of course, lobster are a prey species for ground fish, and a lot of the lobster lobstermen have concerns about efforts to restore ground fish. However, I think we're in a position now where we have a, uh, we're in a very precarious position. So if lobsters are in fact sort of an aquaculture activity where we're feeding them and, and bolstering their populations, well, when you concentrate animals in those kinds of situations, the pro tendency toward disease outbreaks, if, if we get a disease that comes in here and wipes out lobster because of the abundance of lobsters, um, it, we're going to have a major effect on the economy quickly, and that, that could happen very quickly. Having a diversified fishery enables people to shift over to other other species. I had uh, um, another another tie that that was just brought to my attention the other the other night as I uh, I was uh, meeting a friend who's a lobster fisherman, and he he said, "Well, you know, the every lobster trap catches ground fish uh, pretty regularly, and most of those." fish that go in get turned into bait. So when you look at the number of lobster traps up and down the coast, and as, as those small fish, the cod and others get trapped in there, each and every one of them every time is ending up, perhaps not every time, and there are various approaches, I'm sure, but a lot of them get turned into bait, go back into the bait bag, um, or get taken home. Um, that's just the reality of the situation. So there's a constant kind of gleaning of of these um, of these ground fish, according to a lobsterman that that um, gave me that information the other night. Um, another connection between lobstering and these fisheries, of course, is alewives are fantastic bait, especially early in the spring when they're available. They're also locally available, um, whereas now we're bringing bait from all over the world because of the depletion of our bait resources. So we need to be thinking about um, the connections between between these fisheries as well. Millions of alewives coming into the Union River are important as bait, they're important as forage. Um, there's an industry that could be managed um, really, really well, I think, to support a diversity of activities. What do you think, Dennis, about some of these changes that have happened and the, the changes particularly related to the diversity of the species that are out there? In my lifetime, <clears throat> there have been a number of changes uh, that I've seen in the fisheries. And I, I want to go back uh, to the early part of my lifetime, and I think one of the earliest recollections that I can have uh, that I recall uh, about fishing. I was lobstering with Dad, and uh, he 
didn't have a hydraulic hauler. This was before the invention of the hydraulic hauler, which could get me off on a full hour's tangent about <laughs> where we are in terms of uh, development of technologies and tools. Um, but he had a, a winch that ran off the engine, and you would gaff the buoy and put it up through the, the warp up through the snatch block and then take about three turns around the winch, and that would assist you in hauling the trap. It's not actually hauling by hand, where you have no mechanical assistance, but it's a lot slower than presently we use. And so he would haul the trap up, and as a young boy, I would be very excited about what was in the trap. And I've, I've referred to it, if you look closely, there's a whole world in a lobster trap, if, from the sea fleas to the, to the little lump fish to the shrimp to crabs, urchins, everything that comes up in a trap. So he would take his lobsters out of the trap and do the measurement, as Kathy has suggested. And, and uh, if it was the right size, he would plug the claws. This was with wooden plugs before the elastic bands, another change in what we've done. Well, before, the interim there was plastic plugs, and now the rubber bands. Um, and I must say that banding is less uh, invasive and intrusive into the lobster, and so it's a better way to do it. And then if it was a right, he would put it in the scale basket, and um, rebate the trap, look to where he was going to set it again, push it overboard, and go on to the next trap. And, and of course, throw out the, the short lobsters. Um, at one point, he had a lobster that was big enough, um, but he looked at it, and he showed it to me. And underneath, I didn't know it was the, called the abdomen at the time, but it's the tail, and it had a whole mass, a greenish, grayish mass of eggs, where the Female lobsters will carry their eggs uh, externally for a period of time uh, before they have uh, matured enough to swim off and hatch. And he said, this one, Dennis, it has got eggs in it, and we're going to put this one back so that she can have her babies, and you'll have lobsters to catch um, later. But she didn't have a punch in the tail. He called it a punch. It's a V-notch. And so he carefully took a knife, and cut a V-notch out of one of the tail flippers and folded the, the tail back under itself to protect the eggs and carefully put it back into the water. It was a, he was the earliest, he was the best fisherman that I ever met, but he was also the earliest conservationist that I ever met because he was explaining to me, and I'll, I'll tell you that I probably was, in my recollection, four or five uh, during this, taking this lesson. And was he was showing me the sustainability, I didn't use that word either then, of uh, the lobster fishery and how important it is for us, for the fishermen, to take care of it. It has been mentioned that these um, regulations oftentimes came from the fishermen themselves, the lobster fishermen. That is a real tribute to a culture a heritage, a people, a fishermen, uh, to want to take care of them, of, of their industry and their selves and their and their fish. When when we talk about managing the fisheries, we have to, on one hand, manage the fish, and at the same time, manage the fishermen. And those are two very difficult things to do because sometimes they're in conflict with one another. So that's that's how we had to do that. Um, another quick story about that same time was those lobsters that he was 
plugging and putting in the scale basket. Those were going to be part of the daily catch. And then he was throwing the short lobsters or the oversized lobsters or the punched lobsters uh, or the eggers overboard. I, I guess, in an effort to try to help or wanting to help, um, remember that between the time that he had set one trap and we were steaming off to the next buoy, I had reached into the scale basket and was throwing those lobsters <laughs> overboard as well. Um, his education piece extended to what I should and shouldn't do on the boat as well, and so I didn't do that anymore. But <laughs> those, those, the fishery that he uh, prosecuted, and he did all, he did, he did ground fishing, he did dragging, he did trawling, he did lobstering, sculping, shrimping, everything, clamming. He quit school after the eighth grade to go clamming on Deer Isle because clams had, had soared to 25 cents a bushel. He was born, by the way, in 1902, so that was a little... Um, but but the, the point is that he had... We talk about the change in the fishery, and there was a diversity then because fishermen would fish in one time of the year. They'd be fishing for lobsters, and it would go into... Uh, they might be clamming. It might be going into lobstering. It might be going into dragging. It might be going into scalloping. It might be... So year-round, you were constantly um, fishing, and you weren't overfishing the stock. He started out fishing with his father, um, lobstering and trawling, not auto-trawling, but long-line trawling, and that is, that is a whole series of uh, hooks on one line uh, for groundfish. And, and they would do this in a friendship sloop, a friendship sloop with no auxiliary power. Um, to be able to handle a sailboat, a boat powered by the wind, and bring it up into the wind and come up to a, a buoy and haul the trap by hand with no power source, or to be able to haul the trawl and keep the boat into the wind and, and keep it on course, those were very difficult things to do. I couldn't begin to try to do it today. He would tell me those stories constantly in my youth and beyond. And he would oftentimes end those stories with, and sometimes they were a little more fantastic than that, <laughs> they, would be, they would be the offshore schooners on the Grand Banks and the dories and the, the guys going out from their mothership and sometimes not being found again. Um, but he would conclude those stories with, but Dennis, those were the days of wooden boats and iron men. And today, we have iron boats and wooden men. <laughs> and we've got to go back. And he was talking to, the, he was talking to me about this in the 50s and, and the 60s. So those are the, some of the changes that I have seen. And, and I'd love to get into the piece about herring if we get a chance. That sounds great. Um, I, I just wanted to invite um, listeners, if you have any comments or questions for our guests, please feel free to call in at... 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-WERU. And um, Kathy? Well, I, just listening to Dennis's stories brought uh, back some memories of um, interviews that the Lobster Institute has conducted with some of the senior lobstermen in the area trying to capture their stories um, while we still have them with us. And unfortunately, we have lost a few of the people that we did interview. Um, but it, it reminds me two things. First, he was talking about the uh, conservation and how the lobstermen have been very proactive with that. 
And there's a lobsterman from Bar Harbor named John Carter, and he always likes to say, we were conservation before conservation was cool. <laughs> and it's really true. They've been uh, very much that way. And I think part of that is because it is such a generational fishery, as, as Dennis was alluding to. Uh, when we did these interviews with lobstermen, it was very evident that uh, it's something that's been in the family for years. Most of our stories were about young boys going fishing with their grandfathers. And uh, you can listen to a lot of these if you go onto the Lobster Institute's website, if I could, www.lobsterinstitute.org, and go into our education section. You'll hear some of these. And I'm, I was reminded of Eddie Blackmore, uh, who we interviewed, and he was one of the original founders of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. He was also the first chair of the Board of Advisors of the Lobster Institute, and, and we were talking with Eddie, and he talked about going out with his grandfather in their old wooden boat, and he said it was so leaky that what they would do is they'd spread sawdust in the bottom of the boat, and the water would uh, hit the sawdust, and it would absorb, and it would fill the leaks temporarily, he said, of course, till we went out and started fishing in the boat. So... He went out with his grandfather, and uh, they didn't have that great a day. They only had one lobster that they had put in the bucket. And, and by the time they were thinking about heading back, of course, the boat was really starting to leak considerably. So they were trying to bail out the water. And so young Eddie at the time, he picked up the bucket that was in the boat and <laughs> scooped it up and threw it overboard. And he said, whoops, and there went that one lobster we <laughs> caught that day. The whole day's so, catch. whole day's catch. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, I think we have a caller. Um, let's let's hear from our caller. Do you have a comment or a question? I have a question. This is Allison in Brooklyn. I want to thank you for this wonderful show. Uh, my question has to do with the panel's uh, in impressions of what the impacts of rockweed harvests are on fisheries in Maine, and also whether there is concern about ocean acidification and its impact on bivalves. And I'll hang up to hear the answer. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Allison. Um, so the questions are about rockweed harvesting and about the impact of ocean acidification on um, bivalves. Does anyone have any thoughts on uh, these? I would love to make Dennis a comment. Dennis is smiling. <laughs> He's got something to say. Um, <laughs> we uh, at the in the legislature and the Marine Resources Committee uh, had a number of hearings on um, uh, rockweed harvest, um, seaweed harvest. Um, I hadn't thought of it as being uh, much of a problem until I um, became aware of how widespread it is. Um, the the rockweed, the uh, the intertidal rockweed that is harvested most, and that's the the rockweed that occurs. You'll see it at low tide as it lies on the shore, um, and it's submerged at high tide. So it's in that intertidal zone, and it grows um, well. If you were underwater and and were diving or swimming, it there's very tall fronds of it coming up from the bottom, and so think of it as a forest of trees. It provides great um, ecological habitat for young fishes, um, nursery areas, and, and as it lies flat at the um, on the low tide, it provides um, cover for uh, mollusks, for clams, for crabs, other types of things. As it was harvested, or as it's proposed to be harvested, there are some 
uh, rules uh, that you m must it must be harvested no closer than 16 inches from its hold fast. That's the area that secures it to the bottom. And so as I was, I was thinking, and so people are saying to me, well, so that's sufficient. It doesn't it doesn't take away the the um, uh, rockweed, but it it provides uh, for an area. But as I was visualizing this in my head, these tall, and I'll refer to them as trees of uh, with an upper cam canopy of eelgrass uh, and, and seaweed and rockweed are now cut like a hedge. And so they only extend up 16 inches. So what happens to the rest of that water column that was providing habitat for um, small fish, for nursery fish? And so I, my awareness rose considerably and we tried to put in some legislations, especially in the Cobscook Bay area down east, because it seemed as though that's where the greatest uh, harvest and perhaps the greater abuse uh, was taking place. What kind of an impact was it going to have later on to the uh, fisheries? So Allison brings up a good point in terms of the harvest. I don't think it's as simple as saying uh, we can simply cut it no closer than 16 inches. Um, and it's like so much uh, when we talk about marine resource. What I have come to realize, I don't think that I got this from Dad, but I might have. But what I have come to realize is that when we, um, I'll say, mess with a particular part of the ecosystem uh, and over-harvest it or do something to it, try to eradicate it, I'll use sea urchins as another example, we over-harvested them, then that has an effect on something else in that ecosystem or, or some things else that we wouldn't have, couldn't have anticipated, didn't anticipate in the past. And so I am very concerned about the over-exploitation of any type. Uh, there's a balance there that's put there somehow. Uh, I can't begin to understand it, but there is a balance in that ecosystem. Um, and when we mess with that balance, we upset the apple cart. And she, uh, Allison, brings up the good point about the uh, rockweed. And then the other thing, the ocean acidification and the warming of the ocean. Um, when Kathy talked about the lobsters and that they're concerned for the lobster, Lobster Institute's concerned for the lobsters from Long Island Sound to uh, Newfoundland. Newfoundland, that range, there was a big uh, concern with the die-off of the lobsters, not simply in Long Island Sound because of, for whatever reason, and, and it's being attributed by some to the aerial spraying for mosquitoes from the West Nile virus in New York City. And that uh, leaching, that, that uh, insecticide leaching into the water. Uh, there, there's a lot of debate about that. But what there is also concern about more recently is the die-off of lobsters outside of the Long Island Sound and the fact that the water temperature is warming and that the the temperature of the water where the female lobsters will release their eggs uh, at about I think 70 degrees centigrade is now further offshore than it was before and when they were inshore there was some habitat, some security, some safety, some rocks out in the other area uh, closer, uh, farther offshore where the bottom is more flat there is no protection, and a lot of the 
um, young are being devoured by, well, for instance, striped bass or some other thing. So, so there's a very complex web here. I guess my story is that there's a very complex web which could lead to anything from ocean acidification, which is, you know, part of our problem um, that we are creating because of so many people on this finite planet, uh, ocean temperature, which again could be attributed to us, or there's a debate about that, and then over-harvesting. <laughs> it, one of the great quotes uh, that I learned or that I heard in the, at the Atlantic States Marine Resource Commission as we're talking about these various subjects, somebody said that uh, uh, fisheries management, it's... <laughs> It's not ocean, uh, it, fisheries management, it's not rocket science. It's hard. And it really is, in many respects, it's very, very difficult. So these are, I'm glad that Allison brings this point up. This is tough. Uh, well, we're pausing here because yeah. there's a couple people who want to <laughs> say something. We all want to jump in. <laughs> Go ahead, Dwayne. Well, Dwayne, um, I know that you've also, your, your shop is involved a lot with um, rearing fish and hearing Dennis speak about the changes in ocean acidification and Allison's great question um, just immediately made me think about sort of the minute level of detail that you have to pay attention to when you're working with your fish. That's right. Um, so so acidification, tell us a little bit about that. Acidification is a big one of, of those things that we're looking at in the stream side of things. In the freshwater side, of course, we all are aware of acid precipitation, acid rain that had its effect and its um, somewhat lesser um, impacts currently coming out of the rain, but the, the heritage or the, uh, the continuity of where we come from during the industrial period continues to haunt us and, and that is on the stream side of things and, and it's really, a, I, I have to say this, two things. Uh, Habitat, habitat, habitat. People say this. You talk to ecologists, it, it comes back to habitat. So, of course, rockweed is an important feature of the habitat. Look at the extent and scale of it, and you know that the interconnectedness of the marine ecosystem ties directly to that. Um, it's, it's unique in the sense that, um, at least with rockweed, that this is a public resource, in the, and it's different from trees in that sense that um, trees on private land are a private resource. And when you talk about fish, you talk about wildlife, you talk about water, talk about seaweed, it's a public resource. So the way that we manage it has to be different. And there's something called the public trust doctrine, which is one of the earliest laws that was established here on this continent when uh, under European law. And that was that um, some of these things are held in common and they needed to be treated that way, which was different than um, places in Europe. And I urge people to become familiar with that law and what what that means, and that's the way that we engage in our policies around these things. Um, but speaking specifically to the the chemistry side of things, and there are things that we can control. We could, you know, what what we do with the dam and whether we put a fishway in it or not is something that we can control um, at the small level um, at a town, say. Or, and, and I th in fact, I think the town of Orland is wrestling with that right now on the Orland River. And there's many, many examples of that. But then there are things that are um, a bit removed from us. And that's, um, we're, at the tail, we're at the tail end of the, of the uh, airstream coming across the continent. And we're, 
we receive a lot of that acidification. Um, and of course, there's global warming or climate change, and those things have to be looked at very seriously because it is going to result in changes in our habitat, which will result in what we have swimming in these waters. And some of that can be addressed fairly quickly and uh, quite expensively. And, and, they, and people say, you pay now or pay later. And I think we're paying now for what was uh, some mistakes that were made in the past. So we can talk about our fathers and our grandfathers and so on. And, and there were a lot of good measures put in place, but there were a lot of mistakes made. And we, um, we have to raise the bar higher. And that's with our science, that's with our management, that's with, with our education. We really have to take this seriously because there's a lot at stake and we don't know, we can't even envision how much we've lost in truth is what, what we're um, dealing with. And the children, of course, even have less perspective on it than um, some of us who are involved in it closely. Millions and millions of alewives, for instance, um, in some of these places that we, you can conceive of them now. And um, I, I just, I've been using the example of elvers, for instance. So these are the, the young eels that are on their way back from the Sargasso. They're going up into the rivers to become mature. It may take them 20 years to mature before they drop back out. Um, but there were millions and millions of dollars made in the Union River alone this year. I think the first day of the season was over $250,000 cash one night. Um, that's a lot of, if you look at, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, how much cash may have moved through those storefronts during that month. I think the fishermen right there on that riverbank were making a tremendous amount of money, uh, quite comparable to many, probably most of the storefronts combined on uh, Main Street and Ellsworth. We wouldn't have that without water quality, first of all. We can debate whether elver fishing is something that should be allowed, whether it's a gold rush, whether it's sustainable and so on. But the fact is, without good water quality, we, we wouldn't even be able to have that argument. So that's true for lobsters. It's true for all of our shellfish and our finfish. It's all about habitat. Thanks, Dwayne. I think we probably have time for one or two more calls at 1-866-625-9378 or 1-866-625-WERU. Um, Kathy, I think you had uh, some thoughts related to Allison's question, and thank you for your question, Allison. It's clearly sparked a lot of good thinking here. Yes. Well, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ocean acidification Great. Um, in regards to the bivalves and also in regards to the crustaceans. And at this stage, there has not been enough, uh, actually very little research done on ocean acidification in the North Atlantic. And there has been some work done at St. Joseph's College and University of New Hampshire in collaboration uh, looking at the, the uh, bivalves. Uh, there's been some study of larval lobsters both at the University of Maine and at, at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And what we're finding, preliminarily at least, is that there has been a, a softening of the shell due to the imbalance in the water, the ocean acidification, if you will. And uh, whether that will impact uh, the population as a whole or regional areas or is it going to be something uh, of long-term concern, those are answers we don't have just yet. So there's definitely a lot more research that needs to be done in that area. Uh, and a lot of that obviously will come down to uh, 
will there be funding for that type of research, which is always a concern if you're looking at ongoing studies. Uh, most of the concentration on ocean acidification work has been in the Pacific uh, areas at this point. It's just finding its way to the, to the Northeast, so we're hoping that's a, an area of research that can be continued. Great, thank you. Um, I think we have one more call. Um, go ahead, caller, if you want to let us know what your comment or question is and your name. Hello, hi. Good, evening. Uh, good day, everybody. My name's Butch, and I had a question. Um, Gentleman Duane, I believe, was speaking about fisheries as a public trust under the public trust doctrine. And my question is, how come, can anyone shed any light on why uh, there's never been a, a stumpage fee or anything like that in any fisheries, to the best of my knowledge? I know when people mine or, or cut timber or graze or use water in the public lands, um, there's a fee that's paid to the rest of the citizens for taking that commercial resource. And I just wonder if anyone has any insight in why that's never applied here. I'll take my answer off the phone. Great. Thank you for your call. Um, Dennis, do you have some thoughts on that <laughs> from a, a former man or well, um, political perspective? I had never um, thought of it in terms of a stumpage fee. We have had various uh, attempts in the legislature to... Um, to do what uh, Butch is talking about, one of the most recent ones was with regard to um, our water resource. And uh, as companies were extracting water for sale um, to charge an extraction fee, much like you would do for oil in, in Alaska, say, or, or, or something else. It's a public resource. We've put, a, we've put millions of dollars into it to try to maintain its quality. Um, and then to be able to have access to it for profit, is there anything that we can do to that? I'm sure that the fishermen would say that the the fees that they have been uh, that they must pay uh, for various licenses um, would be sufficient to that. But Butch is, I think, talking about something greater, and that is a percentage of the catch um, being returned to the public. Um, that's not something that we have discussed, at least at any level that I have been at in the in the policymaking procedure. I can uh, understand where he's coming from, but I don't have an answer for it. There is one example with, um, and probably others, but with alewives again at the town level. Some of the towns, this mm -hmm. discretion given to the towns around their management plans and and how they uh, disperse those rights and how they account for the. Uh, the income coming back and and some towns will receive payment from the the fisherman who receives the right to harvest uh, based upon how many fish are caught so there are some examples of that again i think the licensing fees the self-taxing um, types of mm -hmm. programs as well i think with regards to the always excuse me just for a minute but there used to be a um a, a part on the books, and maybe it's still that that uh, widows in the community were to receive uh, a bushel of alewives or something yeah. as part of the harvest. Town of Damascata has that they still on still. the books from early 1700s, I think. Well, in regards to the lobster industry, I believe there is an agreement between the state of Maine, Department of Marine Resources, and uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric. Um, administration. Administration, thank you. Um, that there will not be any sort of levy put on landings uh, because they want to be sure that the statistics that they're gathering are accurate. 
So there is an agreement in place that landings cannot be taxed, if you will. Licensing fees, uh, that's a, another situation. Uh, those could be, you know, mm -hmm. managed differently, you know, theoretically, but uh, not, not the landings. Interesting. Um, we have just a few minutes left, um, and I wanted each of our guests to um, uh, give a little parting thoughts on why we should care about fisheries on the coast of Maine today. Um, why, why does it matter? Why should people who have nothing to do with fisheries on the coast of Maine, um, you know, worry about these, these issues that we're talking about? And then you can also feel free to tell people um, a website or how they might get more information from your direct organizations. Who would like to start? This is probably a question you should have started the show with. <laughs> Short, <yes. laughs> All right. Um, we should care, even those of us who aren't fishermen or haven't been fishermen, we should care because it's part of our resource, all right? It's ours, um, as has been talked about. It's a public resource. Uh, it's also part of our food supply. Um, and if, if you aren't, for instance, vegan, then you would be having some of the protein that is produced in the sea. We haven't talked a great deal about farming in the sea except for the allusion to the lobsters and then the traps, but certainly there is a place for, in, in my view, um, aquaculture, and that is using the sea to um, grow things, grow part of the protein that we will use to feed ourselves. So th we should be concerned there. We should be concerned about the water quality issue. Um, there are a number of reasons. And we should be concerned about our heritage. Um, we should, if we don't know uh, what it was like uh, in the past, how how are we going to know how we got here in the present and how are we going to know how we should move forward in the future? Um, uh, Dad said to me again, one final point, Dad said to me again, um, you know, with the change in the technologies, we have the capability of catching the last fish and we have to be careful that we don't. It looks like we're running out of time. Um, I just wanted to let people know that you can get in touch with all three of these organizations through the Down East Fisheries Trail at www.downeastfisheriestrail.org. Um, and we've come to that time when I'd like to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Han Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. A radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain house Highland Music Recording. Thanks to our guests in the studio, that's Dwayne Shaw from the Down East Salmon Federation, Kathy Billings from the Lobster Institute, and Dennis Damon on the board of the Penobscot East Resource Center. Thanks to those who listened and called in with their questions and experience. Special thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for en engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. Ron Beard will be back next month. This is Natalie Springle from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, guest host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Attention, please, all summer residents and visitors of vacation.